Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. And, and as I prayed just a couple minutes ago, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that if there's anything that's distracting us right now, whether it be sin or, or fear or anxiety or, or depression or anything, anything that's distracting us, I pray that we would lay it at your feet. And as Mary did, we would just sit at your feet and hear from you. And Lord, I pray that your seeds of truth would be buried deep within us and not just stay in our heads, but work their way down to our hearts and become a real part of our lives. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As 21st century Americans, it always seems like we're running out of what? Don't say money. Time. It always seems like we're running out of time. We never have enough time to do different things. And what's curious about this is that's not always the way it's been. For instance, according to an article from a popular news website, while technology was promoted as time-saving, it's actually promoted having less time for rest and to be with our families. The American home in the year 1900 wasn't much different than a home in 1500. There was no electricity, and only the rich had indoor plumbing. All of a sudden, though, through the first half of the 20th century, a surplus of what was touted as labor-saving technology started coming into existence. Labor-saving technology. These included air conditioning, which we're grateful for during the summer, modern toilets, which we're also grateful for, refrigerators, freezers, vacuum cleaners, electric stoves, and automatic clothes washers and dryers. Believe it or not, those things didn't always exist. But instead of saving time, this new technology actually started making Americans take more time to do these basic tasks. And why was that? Because as this technology grew, expectations for what was supposed to be normal grew and rose. Before this technology, unwashed clothes and body odor were just a way of life. You would wash your clothes twice a year. Chores like dusting were left until spring when it could no longer be tolerated. <laughs> you just say, okay, something needs to be done about this. In some homes, that's still the way <laughs> it is. All right. Several trips during the week to these new places called supermarkets meant you could buy more and different kinds of food. And electric stoves meant you should be cooking more daily meals and spending more time on those meals and impressing people with those meals. In fact, an economist and author studied the differences in time spent doing things around the house and actually discovered that in 1920, 51 hours were spent on housework per week. In the 1960s, 52 hours were spent on housework. And in the 1960s, 53 hours were spent on housework. And I can imagine it just keeps growing and growing. The time spent working actually increased as the techno technology evolved. And time spent on rest or enjoying activities or being with your family ran out more and more. And as technology and education have increased in America, we keep running out of more and more time. Many parents are stressing 
themselves completely out to push their kids to get the best and most elite education they can get as early as possible so they can get into the best and most elite colleges when they grow up. Another e economist has dubbed this phenomenon the rug rat race. Instead of rat race, it's the rug rat race. YouTube and other social media stars are drowning in stress and anxiety to stay popular and keep driving their likes and shares and to keep up with the ever-changing social trends. And from another angle, as America became more and more corporate-driven and more so greed-driven, many employed family members are at the mercy of certain uncaring managers and bosses who determine their endless work hours. We're running out of time. As time has gone on, we've been running out of more and more time with our families, with ourselves, and most importantly, for God. In today's parable, Jesus talks about people running out of time. But running out of time to do the most important thing God wants us to be doing. As with most of the parables of Jesus we've been covering lately, there is an event that precipitates Jesus telling a story or parable to drive his point further home. What precipitates today's parable is what happens immediately following Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Now, for those of you who don't know, the triumphal entry is what we observe on Palm Sunday each year. And even, even though we weren't able to physically do that this year, to physically be with each other this past Palm Sunday. But it's when everybody uh, in Jerusalem was so excited about Jesus being who they thought was going to be the king who kicked out the Romans and finally set up their long-awaited kingdom. So as Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey, fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, they laid palm branches and their coats down in expression of their loyalty to this king and shouted, Hosanna, save us now! Do it now! Everyone in Jerusalem gathered there for Passover was excited. All except for a certain group of men called the Pharisees. They weren't as excited as everybody else was. The Pharisees were a religious sect of Judaism who prided themselves on following all the rules of the Jewish law, including all the ones they added to it, and who prided themselves on teaching everyone else to do the same. They were the religious authority of that time, so when this guy named Jesus starts teaching that he's the religious authority, guess who becomes seethingly jealous and then spends every waking moment trying to discredit and destroy this guy? Those Pharisees. As they keep being thwarted time after time by Jesus' wisdom and authority, the tension keeps building and building until they start discussing ways of killing Jesus and just being done with him once and for all. This tension comes to a head during the week following Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. This time, it's the chief priests who come up to Jesus in the middle of some of his teaching in the temple and demand to know by whose authority Jesus was doing miracles and giving teaching. And Jesus responds, I'll answer you that if you answer me this, by whose authority uh, uh, did John the Baptist baptize people when they repented of their sins? 
and the chief priests were caught off guard and start discussing amongst themselves, if we say from God, then this Jesus guy will respond, then why didn't you believe him and what he taught about me? And if we say that John's authority was just from himself, we'll create a riot against us because everybody else believes that he was from God. Why they were so scared about this is that the chief priests, according to one biblical scholar, were more like politicians in Jesus' day. And that's where they differed from the Pharisees. What is the greatest fear of any politician? Unpopularity, right? That's the greatest fear of any politician, unpopularity. So the chief priests held their popularity among the Jewish people of Jerusalem far above anything else and anyone else. See, John the Baptist was the forerunning messenger before Jesus made himself public. Just as a messenger would run into a town in Jesus' day and announce that the king was on his way and they better get ready for his arrival. If the chief priests couldn't publicly answer where John, the messenger's authority to be the, where, where John's authority, who was the messenger, to be the forerunner, where his authority came from, then they had no right to ask where Jesus, the king's authority, came from. Do you see that? If they couldn't answer where the forerunner's authority came from, they had no right to ask where the king that he represented, his authority, came from. It was a very simple question, which in theory had a very simple answer. The messenger's authority came from the king he represented when he entered a town. That's very simple. Everybody knew that. Everybody knew that's what happened. Everybody knew that answer. But see, if the chief priests publicly admitted that John the Baptist's authority came from God as a messenger, then who would they then be forced to admit also derived his authority from God? Jesus. And that was the very last thing these guys wanted to publicly admit. So the chief priests try to sneak their way out of the, the dilemma they now find themselves in. And like any politician, they, they try to spin it. And they say, we don't know. They try to sneak their way out and they respond, the best answer we can give him is, we don't know. So then Jesus responds in Matthew 21, 27, between the lines. If you can't answer that simple and obvious question, which anyone with half a brain could answer, then I'm not going to stoop to your level, beholding myself to you, and give you the answer you demand to know. Jesus then tells this story, which we're going to be looking at today, to drive his point further home. What's interesting to see about this parable is that Jesus is not telling it to his disciples this time or even to a mixed crowd. Who is Jesus directly telling this story to? The chief priests. That's who he's directing this story to. There were others around this conversation you can see in this picture that he was in the, Jesus was in the middle of teaching when, chief priests, when the chief priests come up to him. So there are people around and they're going to overhear things but it was mainly directed to the chief priests. So if you brought your Bible with you, please turn to Matthew chapter 21. If you didn't, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Or if you, if you don't want to use that, you probably have a smartphone with you. 
Uh, you can look up the free Bible app from life.church in your app store and, and have all different kinds of versions and translation, translations and reading plans. It's pretty cool. You can look up Matthew 21 in whatever Bible you brought with you, and we're going to be starting in Matthew 28. Uh, Matthew 21, verse 28. I'm sorry. Jesus starts out by saying this. So what do you think? What do you think? Do you think you're even getting into the kingdom of God based on your strict, prideful, strict adherence to the Jewish law and more so prideful support of the strict adherence to the Pharisees' own made-up rules? Do you think that's how it works? What do you think? Here's Jesus' answer to his own rhetorical question here in story form. A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in the vineyard. Now this wasn't out of the ordinary. This was customary for a father to tell his sons what they were going to do for their work that day. And it was customary for that son to immediately and simply obey what his father instructed him to do. Indeed, it was even part of the original law that God had given to Moses, that children must honor their parents. That's number what of the Ten Commandments? Oh, I put you on the spot. Number five, very good. That's number five of the Ten Commandments. But what happens in verse 29? And he answered, I will not. That's his answer. Now, knowing what we know about that society, that's, whoa, that's huge. Where did he have the guts to come up with that? While that unfortunately doesn't seem all that out of the ordinary today, this blatant dishonor was punishable according to the Jewish law. This first son's response was, no way, Jose, I'm not doing that. We don't know why. Maybe he wanted to go do something else instead of doing the work his father wanted him to do. Maybe it was exceptionally hot that, that day. We don't know why this first son's res initial response was simply, no, I'm not going to do that. All we know is that that's what his answer was. I'm not going to do that. But this first son starts thinking about it. And he starts weighing all the pros and cons of continuing in his disobedience. See, there's a time element to this parable. This first son does take some time to think about it, but then realizes that the reward of obedience far outweighed the punishment of disobedience and changes his mind, the second part of verse 29. But afterward, he regretted it anyway. See, there is a time element. He did think about it. He weighed the pros and cons, and he decided it's better to go actually go into the field and work than suffer the consequences. Now keep this first son in mind. The father now goes to the second son, probably not because the first son initially refused, but because he needed both of his sons to go work in his vineyard. And he says this. The man came to his second son, verse 30, and said the same thing. And the second son answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Now see, whereas the first son flat out said, nope, this second son tries to placate his father with words. Yes, I'll go and do it this second son says, but then refuses to actually do it. See, there's a, a time element to this response too. Whereas it seems like 
after only a short time after the first son says no, he actually does go and obey. With the second son, he initially says yes, but already had it in his mind, he really wasn't actually going to obey. And the time factor with the second son is that he continually refuses to go into the vineyard. He never comes to a decision. He continually, well, he, the decision is that he's going to continue to refuse to obey, to continue to refuse to go into the vineyard. Now, I'm sure the thoughts passed through the mind of the second son about whether or not he wanted to continue to disobey or if he should obey. Those thoughts were probably all primarily pragmatic without emotional or spiritual response. Those pragmatic thoughts were, will my dad actually follow through with punishing me for my dishonor of him and my action to disobey him? What are the chances he'll actually follow through with that? I'm going to bet on that. How much is disobedience worth it to me? What's most beneficial to me right now? Disobedience or obedience? And he continues and continues to make the decision to remain in disobedience. That time factor of ongoing and continual disobedience in comparison to the first son's eventual obedience will be huge in the understanding of this. Jesus asks the obvious question, next in verse 31, which of the two did the will of his father? And the chief priests can at least answer that one. And they said, the first. Whereas Jesus sometimes doesn't directly interpret his parables himself, he does directly interpret this one here. So Jesus' interpretation of this directly to the chief priests is this, last part of verse 31. Truly I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. It doesn't catch us as off guard as it would have to the chief priests. This statement of the tax collectors and prostitutes entering the, king, the kingdom of God before any of the chief priests would was the most offensive statement Jesus could make to the chief priests at that time. The most offensive statement he possibly could make. In Jewish society, the tax collectors were sellouts. Their own brothers who put their own greed above their fellow brothers and sisters, their fellow Jewish brothers and sisters. These guys would be hired by the Roman governorship to collect taxes for, for Rome from the oppressed Jewish people. And in doing so, they betrayed their own country. And not only that, but they overcharged for these taxes and lined their own pockets by cheating out their own countrymen out of their hard-earned money. You can see why this would be offensive. Tax collectors were some of the most hated people in Jerusalem. And for women, engaging in prostitution and selling your body for money was one of the most despicable and dishonorable things a woman could do in the Jewish society of Jesus' day. Jesus is, this is, this is what I want to focus on here, though. Jesus' point was not to deride those who worked as tax collectors or worked as a prostitute. His point wasn't to deride them and make them feel bad and, 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 and say, look at how sinful these people are, but actually to elevate them 
surpassed the chief priests. Their elevation was not because of themselves. That's what I also want to point out, too. It's not because of themselves or what sin they were involved with, but what they did in spite of those things that were defining them. See, Jesus compared the most offensive group of people in the first century, in first century Jewish society, to the first son in the story he just told. And he compared the chief priests to the second son. Jesus explains further in verse 32. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterward so as to believe him. This is why I spent so much time explaining what happened immediately before Jesus tells the story because Jesus now turns everything back to everyone's response to John the Baptist and his message as the forerunning messenger of the coming King of Kings. What was John's main declaration? Repent, right? Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. That was his main declaration. The emphasis wasn't only on believing. The emphasis was on what? Repenting. That's what the emphasis was on, repenting. Repenting is an action. It requires obedience. It requires action, just like in that parable we just went through. Repentance is the act of turning from your sin and selfishness and turning to God and humbling yourself before him. That's what repentance is. The most offensive group of people in Jewish society were also the most open to hearing what John had to say. Like I mentioned in a previous message, these people and, and others who were at rock bottom had tried chasing after what the world had to offer and found that at the end of it, there was nothing. There was only more emptiness. So they were searching for more. And they went to the banks of the Jordan River where they had heard a man that was dressed in camel hide shouting about the need for repentance. These who had been disobeying God and breaking his commandments by the way they were openly living were initially telling God, no, I will not listen to you. I will not obey you. I will not do anything you want me to do. Like the first son's initial reaction. But then when they heard John, they thought repentance and actually turning back to God in obedience is the one thing I haven't done. All I've done is disobey God and run away from him. You know what? Maybe I should actually be running to him and actually repent of my way of living and obey him. When they did that, believing what John was saying about the Messiah being on his way and putting their trust in that Messiah from turning from the way they had been living and turning to that Messiah, they finally found freedom. They finally found spiritual fulfillment and they finally found peace. The time factor in their decision was that their disobedience eventually came to an end. There was an end to it. Their reconciliation with God actually put an end to their time of disobedience and rebellion. 
And because of that, and only that, they were going to be able to enter the kingdom of God. The chief priests, on the other hand, would never enter the kingdom of God unless they did the same exact thing those tax collectors and prostitutes did, and that was humble themselves before God and seek his salvation from their sins too. But the time factor with them, as Jesus mentions at the end of verse 32, is that whereas the so-called sinner's time of disobedience eventually came to an end through their repentance and obedience, the chief priest's disobedience was still ongoing. There was not an end to that. The ongoing disobedience would only result in punishment, like with the second son faced from his father for never following through on his obedience. That ongoing disobedience, if it never came to an end and turned into repentance and obedience, would eventually seal their eternal fate as, as ongoing, their ongoing disobedience would eventually seal their fate of ongoing weeping and gnashing of teeth. The chief priest's continual disobedience would not go on forever. It could not go on forever. And they would eventually run out of time to repent. This cold, hard truth is the difference between an eternity spent worshiping God and enjoying his blessings forever and an eternity of punishment. This earthly life will not last forever. It will not last forever. And the time factor is, eventually, we will all run out of time. The cold, hard truth of agnosticism is that it's a mirage. It's a mirage. It's like you try to touch it, and it's not there. It's a mirage. Agnosticism, or remaining in an ongoing state of unrepentance because one never comes to a conclusion about what they will believe, will eventually cost those who think that's an option. If you are an agnostic, the cold, hard truth is that you will run out of time like everyone else. And then it will be too late. You will not be able to exist forever in a state of never making up your mind about what you believe in ongoing disobedience like the second son thought he could get away with. Eventually, you will have to pay the price of never repenting of your sin. That's why agnosticism is only a mirage. It's not actually an option for any human. If you have been living your life in an ongoing rebellion against God and have never come to a place of ending that by repenting of your sin and asking Him for forgiveness, you will eventually run out of time to do that. And the truth is, none of us knows how much any of us, how, how much time any of us has left. We could walk out the doors from this place and our life could end right there and then. None of us knows how much time we have left. So today, end your time of ongoing disobedient rebellion. Humble yourself and accept the free gift that Jesus extends to all of us. The gift that he paid the price of our sin on our behalf, that which we had no hope of paying. Accept the truth that God took your place that Jesus took your place on the cross and rose again from the dead to extend forgiveness when you repent of your sin. 
realize that nothing in this world will bring you peace, will bring you spiritual fulfillment, will bring you freedom from any sort of chains except for the power of God found in the forgiveness of your sin and your obedience to him as king. That's it. That's the only way. Please, I beg you, don't run out of time. Don't play games anymore, sitting on the fence, never making a decision on this. Because we've all seen that all that that ongoing and unending disobedience will earn us. Time will run out and our eternal fate of torment will be sealed. And there's a lesson for believers in here as well with this time factor of obedience. Even when you put your faith and trust in Jesus for forgiveness of your sin and you repent and you give your life to Jesus, you have to bring every area of your life in obedience to being in line with what is pleasing to your Heavenly Father. You don't get the luxury as a child of God, as a believer of Jesus, you don't get the luxury of ongoing disobedience like the second son thought he had never actually bringing a sinful area of your life in line with what is pleasing to God, you will run out of time. My mother would have to tell me many times as a kid, I won't tell you how many times as a kid, this truth, delayed obedience is really disobedience. Delayed obedience is really disobedience. We've seen that, that, the truth of that in this parable. The first son and the tax collectors and prostitutes eventually brought the rebellion against God to an end. That was the difference. If there is an area of your life that you continue to hold on to, that you know is just harboring sin against God, you are delaying your obedience and remaining in a state of disobedience obedience. The cold hard truth is that scripture teaches us as followers of Jesus to never prolong and to never delay our obedience to God in every area of our lives or else the cold hard truth is that it remains rebellious disobedience. Delayed obedience or what is really ongoing disobedience will only invite the rebuke and chastisement of Almighty God want to ask you this. Do you really want to live your life in an ongoing state of inviting the rebuke and chastisement of Almighty God in your life? Because we know this. He will rebuke us for our ongoing disobedience. Because why? Because he loves us. He will do that because he loves us. Hebrews 12 tells us that plainly. That's a very unpopular thing to think or to say, but that's part of having a healthy fear of God. Don't run out of time on your obedience. And there's a flip side to this as well. If you know God is leading you and telling you he wants you to do something for him, whether it's to tell someone you know about Jesus or to serve him in some kind of ministry, don't delay your obedience. Don't put it off. Answer his call. Serve your king in what he's called you to do. Be a witness to his power as you obey him in love. And as a bonus, like we were talking about last week, 
earn yourself some eternal reward along the way too. That's a bonus. Earn yourself some eternal reward when Jesus comes back for you. Never underestimate. These aren't my words. These are script, this is scripture. Never underestimate the amount of blessing that God will bring into your life now and the amount of eternal blessing and reward you're building up for yourself in heaven for simply and immediately obeying what God has called you to do. Never underestimate that. That's positive motivation. So in all things, whatever it is, let us end, let us put an end to any ongoing disobedience or delayed obedience, which really is ongoing disobedience. Repent of our sin and any areas of sin still living in our lives and finally turn to obedience. If we've never made that decision to repent of our, of our sin and ask God to forgive us of our sin and, and ask, us, ask him to bring us into his family because of what Jesus has done for us, do that right now. Don't run out of time. And if there's an ongoing disobedience in your life, make a decision to repent of that now and bring that into submission to him, into line with what, with what we all know is, as we study his word, what is pleasing to him. Let us live in ongoing obedience, answering every call God gives to us, serving out of our love for him, and earning bonus reward on top of that. Let not one of us run out of time in any of these areas. Let us all make the most of what time we have left by obeying God in every area of our lives with immediate and authentic and open obedience. We have no clue what powerful things God will do in our lives and in the lives of others or how many souls will be saved through that immediate obedience. We have no clue. So, brothers and sisters, don't waste your time. Don't waste your time. Because whose time is that really? It's really God's time. So let us rest in the promises of God that he will make everything a person who strives to live every area of his life, his or her life righteously in and pleasing to God in, he promises to prosper everything that they do. And all the while, as Jesus said, and as we talked about last week, we're building up treasure for ourselves in heaven. There is only powerful good waiting for us when we obey God immediately and with an open heart. There will be the saving of souls on this earth and the work of God powerfully going forth now. And there will be an eternal blessing at the end of all of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this very short, very simple parable, but everything that it pours forth for us. I pray that if there's anybody here who's never made that decision, they've, they've sat on the fence for years, They've never made that decision to give up their life, give it to you, repent of their sin, ask you for forgiveness, and give their life to you, only because of what Jesus has done. Lord, I pray that if they have never done that, that they would do that right now and not run out of time. And Lord God, if there's any of us here who have made that decision, who are following you, but there's an area of our lives that we're holding on to, that we know is sin, but we're just, we're, we're, 
allowing to be an ongoing disobedience to you. I pray that we would finally submit that. We would repent of that, submit that to you, and bring that in line with what you want, with what is pleasing to you. I pray that we would make that decision today. And then take the steps we need to do to make that happen. And Lord, for all of us, as you call us to do different personal missions in our families, in our community, in our church, and around the world, that we would answer that call and we would not let it be delayed obedience, but we would answer that and we would start doing what you call us to do. Lord, we thank you for the many promises you give to us that we have to look forward to. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name.